drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Eyes down for a full house, it's Drive-By Cinema, Season 2, Episode 33, Two Fat Ducks. Quack, quack. Ah, now, in this movie uh, that we're about to watch, you might be asked to kneel before a gun. Yeah. In which case, you'd have Dirty Knees, 33. Thank you, Bingo Caller Paul. Episode 33. And I'm Rick. Welcome. You know, Bingo yeah. these days, I don't think it's the same as we think it is. I've heard that oh. you don't actually fill in the cards yourself now. It's all done electronically. Then what is the point in being there? What is the point in being there anyway, Paul? I mean, you might as well just buy a The ticket. level of skill. I mean, <laughs> there's a level of skill in like having four or five cards. Right. So well, the skill now... is being able to fill in more than one card. So like the chance of winning is a curve, isn't it? And if you play all the games at once... An optimization curve. Yeah. Optimization curve. You're going to have better returns than if you play one at once, you see. Well, but, um, I've heard that now it's done electronically and it just marks them off for you. So presumably you can have any number of bingo cards. That's as many as annoying. you can afford. It's like, what they do with the lottery? All these scratch card lotteries. It doesn't feel like the lottery anymore, does it? It needs to be special. It's like what they've done to Christmas. What have they done? They have multiple the Christmases. Black Friday and these... <laughs> Blooming Easter eggs before March and oh, it's terrible. Sorry. <laughs> Look, yeah, wow. Why are we talking about this? Bingo calling. Yeah, it's not what it used to be and all that. But Richard, before we get into this week's movie, I think we inevitably have to be very, very obsessed about what we may or may not have said right or wrong. Well, probably wrong in previous weeks. Please tell me we've had some input from our erstwhile and very valued listeners, Richard. Oh yes, we have, Paul. Oh fuck! It was not not the not the answer I was hoping or expecting. I'm going to give you a multiple choice. Here. I thought I'd said medicate them. <laughs> multiple choice. Here's your, here's your choice. Do you know, could... I thought multiple choice implied you could choose more than one answer. It sort of does, doesn't it? Yeah, it's mm. the difference between a radio button and a series of check boxes, isn't it? Yeah, typically it's called check box on Google Classroom. Right. So, Paul. Yeah, sorry. I think, You're going to give me a quiz. Yeah, well, no, I'm going to ask you. Do you want us to go over things we didn't mention about Batman again? Or do you want to hear information? Day. Do you want to hear information about some really old episodes about Dune? Oh, no. <laughs> both, actually. These both intrigue me. No, sure. I understand we're going to do both. The question is, which do you okay. want to do in this particular this, episode? Uh, let's do Dune. Good choice. So, oh, I'm going to I'm going to say listener George, but he's not really a listener. I mean, you have to sort of twist his arm to listen to it. Yeah. But he did listen to the Dune David Lynch version episode, and that was that was way back episode four. Episode well, four. Yeah, he's Thank a fan of the novel, and I think he's also a wow. fan of the Lynch film. I think he's also a fan yeah, of the. That's a good movie. Uh, so he watched and listened to both movies and both the <laughs> and old Dune podcast and the new Dune podcast. And he yeah. pulled me up on some things oh. relating to... Thank you, George. ...the Dune novel. Thank you, George. Okay. Thank you for humbling Richard. <laughs> I'll deal with the egomaniacal, <laughs> egomaniacal temper tantrum after after podcasts. I hope you don't no. provoke him too much. <laughs> no, he did, Richard does not throw teddy bears ever. Go on, Richard. Listen... I think, he pokes them. He pokes his teddy bears. I think some of what I got wrong 
it reflects for two things. First of all, the fact that I don't hold the novel in very high regard. Yeah. So I don't care for it. You know, I don't. It doesn't have a treasured place in my memory banks. You you you'd read some stuff on Wired saying, "Hey, a god, okay, it's all about some sort of crypto." Crypto uh, imperialistic American intent, and it's not. It's a strong. It's a strong essay against modern imperialism. But anyway, go on, continue. Uh, no, I'd also like to say you could say, "Oh, it's you know white savior. It's Lawrence of Arabia." Except, of course, in the novel, Paul is ostensibly mixed race. But anyway, go on, continue. <laughs> I know what you read. I saw it on Wired too. <laughs> No, no. I, I <laughs> I'm not even sure I've read the wide article, I'm extemporising but... in a bad way here. This is jazz beats that have gone off. Richard, you continue to make your point. No, it, I think some of my mistakes also demonstrate the fact that Lynch's interpretation has in a way supplanted oh. my memory of the novel. You know, It's now that Lynch's movie is more important to me than Herbert's original. So some of the things I pulled up the second movie for were things that Lynch had done, but weren't in the original novel. But anyway. Yeah. I th- now, so, at the start of the first movie, Princess Irulan narrating says it's the year 10191 AD. But as George points out, he doesn't think that that's necessarily in the Julian calendar. So it's, n- it's not necessarily like, you know, 8,000 years from now or whatever. I see. It's in the... Well, it could be... Any length of time away, couldn't it? Okay. When we were discussing Dune, I made uh-huh. complaints that the political machinations of the story didn't make any sense to me. Ah. Why did the Emperor do what he did? Why did he put the Atreides house on Arrakis and then let the Harkonnens invade and help the Harkonnens invade? It didn't seem to make any sense. Because Atreides was already maybe more powerful than the Emperor? Well, George's explanation was that the Atreides are becoming too popular and the Imperial family is concerned that they may have competition. So they set them up to be the fall guys by giving them Dune uh, and then giving secret military assistance to the Harkonnens. So the situation can end up being roughly what it was before, minus the Atreides, and without the Emperor visibly taking sides. Yes. Which, for any other great house, would then unite them against them. So a bit like Princess Diana's death, really. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, no. Did I just say that out loud? And it, ignore what I just said. Go on, continue. No, please enlighten us as the conspiracy No, no, no I, I didn't mean to imply anything by that whatsoever. Just some unconscious... You're George. right, because the Queen had given Diana the job of extracting spice from the Middle East. <laughs> but she'd set her up to fail, hadn't she? And had her By murdered. spice, do we mean fashionable knitwear centred around the <laughs> fashions of Wham? <laughs> Potentially, the 80s, like the early 80s, it was all about Citroen 2 CVs, sensible but fashionable knitwear, you know, that kind of Range Rovers. You know. All of that was spice in a certain sort of way, wasn't it? The People's Princess Ball. I was suggesting she may have been. No, I'm not suggesting anything. Go on, continue. George also mentioned that, you know, the voice in both Lynch's movie and in Villeneuve's new movie... Which wasn't copied by Star Wars in any way, shape or form. <laughs> Funnily I enough... categorically deny that happened. In Dune, in the book, that whole thing is much subtler. 
you know, the voice uh, is supposed to be indistinguishable from normal speech. Otherwise, in a way, it sort of be pointless, wouldn't it? If you knew I they see. were trying to manipulate you, yeah. which is really what it's more like in Star Wars, isn't it? So again, I think you've nailed it. Really, that that, that was d- directly taken from Dune, and apparently, I take an issue with the idea that Paul met Stilgar in the palace before he went out into the desert. I said that I didn't think that happened in the novel. Well, according to George, that did happen in the novel. I stand corrected. Right. Um, It's possible, if we can convince George to be a guest on the show, he might have a lot more to say about Dune. George, come along! I don't know whether we want that, do we? Do we want that? An entire episode? Of George telling us what happens in the Dune novels because we don't know. (laughs) I don't know, actually. I mean, it would be educational, wouldn't it? But, I mean... Mostly, I do this not to be educated and not to educate others, but mostly just to hold forth in my somewhat invalid opinion. Poorly educated opinions, yes. Yeah. All right. Paul, do you have any corrections or, uh, you know, omissions of your own? Or do you consider yourself to be <laughs> perfect? <laughs> Paul, it's time what? to listen to a, a short snatch of delightful music. Speaking of snatches. Do, did you like snatch, Richard? Do you like yes. snatch generally? You do. Okay. Richard's confirmed he likes to nibble on some snatch. Okay. <laughs> Richard, uh, have you mounted Have you mounted your microphone today? I have mounted. Well done. Yeah. I hope you wiped it off afterwards. Right. Okay, Richard, you're about to say something about snatch, but I beat you to it uh, badly. But you In say something don't, more, coherent. more like. Oh, missus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, missus. Go on. What about snatches? Bound is a sexy, sexy movie. Yes. Yeah. Good, glad you agree. 1996, Paul. It is. This is the first, I think the first movie that the Wachowskis took on as a project before they did The Matrix, for which they become rightly very famous. Wow. Were they chosen for this, or did they kind of try to muscle their way in on it? I think they finagled their way into the industry. Finagled it. Got this film Through made. this movie, yeah. Reasonably cheaply, right? It's not very expensive Six million. Film. I don't know. It's not. It's not. It's not cheap, but it's not expensive, is it? It's not a blockbuster budget. No. I'll tell you what, though. It made some of its money back. It made seven million in the box office. And it's quite a low-key, arty film with an R rating, so its audience would have been limited. Paul, perhaps you should explain your relationship to this film, since you, we've described this as your white yeah. whale, or one of this your white is, whales. This is well. Oh gosh, I tell you what. It's like being a double rainbow. Yeah. Uh huh. And I don't mean innuendo by Zippy that's double innuendo. Okay. <laughs> it's been a double rainbow, right? Because, like, I got to this one and you, I think you, you mentioned this out of the blue, didn't you, or something? I don't know how we got here. Well, we were probably talking about Wachowskis around the Matrix time. Ah, right. Okay. And we got here and, and then I started watching it, like, on the weekend and I thought, ah, I've got my link to my other white whale. Because I remember watching this and the other movie at the same time, kinda. And I remember watching them for a reason together, and that's because they both feature Jennifer Tilly. So this discovering this white whale or eyeworm, whatever we want to call it, was a delight. Okay, but just you know, just the last couple of days, realizing that this is going to lead me on to one of my two remaining white whales, just just heaven, just absolutely heaven. So like, I'm over the moon completely for me. This movie was one of the few movies I ever bought on DVD. 
Whoa. This was big DVD time, actually, here. I know it was because I'd just been paid a lot to appear as on, on billboards around China as Mr. DVD, Dr. DVD. Like, <laughs> we'd done a 12-minute promotional video with the, with the boss of the company. Uh, we had no air coming when we were shooting it, so I was, like, dripping sweat. I was wearing a silk, a burgundy silk shirt from Next, so it was, like, shiny silk thing. It was the year two, 1997, big thing. Uh, and I, I was wearing that because, of course, I couldn't buy any clothes out in China at the time because there weren't any people who were over six foot at the time. There are now, but there weren't then. And oh, uh, there were very few. Yeah. Uh, but so I was sweating because we were doing it in about 35 degrees, humid heat, you know, busy. At the time, it was rather like Bangkok, you know, the sounds of this street, the city street in southern China. Coming through the window, just recording this, you know, me as Dr. DVD. I'd invented the new patent, that kind of thing. The guy who actually invented it all was, you know, deeply unphotogenic and not Western. and was, you know, sitting there having written the script for it. And, he, you know, I had to write down the real equations to what I discovered to get the DVD to work on the whiteboard, you know. And I'm Dr. DVD. And there I am, you know, across several big cities on the ends of skyscrapers, full, you know, 25-story high billboards, me and my DVD player, okay. Uh, yeah, and we just finished recording that. And Seoul, as well as money for being the face of DVD in China, or, or one company's DVD promotional strategy, uh, like the boss said, here's the money, like here's some royalty and retain, re- retention. But he said, here, have a few DVD players, have a few speaker systems and whatnot. And we just, like, installed, like, because back in the day, an expensive speaker system was like, 12 different speakers. Do you remember? You used to type to your TV. Uh, and we just started using it. And I think this is one of the first movies we watched on DVD. So I do remember. But I feel as though I would be failing in some kind of journalistic level if I didn't yeah. say, do you have any pictures of, of you on a, fo- on right. a poster? <laughs> okay. The biggest regret I have about this time is I had a really nice... I've been to Hong Kong. I, had, I bought a really nice glass dolphin necklace, uh, which I tied really tight because back in the day, people used to wear jade as protection on their, on their throats. But I got a little blue glass dolphin. You tied really tightly round your neck. Yeah, like, a, you know, like, a, do you know the cowboy bootlace ties that people used to have? And when you came like to, you had all these memories of things that you dreamt so, about. But really, you'd been in, no, in an induced listen, coma. Richard. <laughs> Actually, no, I did have a really bad accident about two years, two or three years there after this. But that was and it shattered the glass dolphin. Would you just be quiet, Richard? And your memories. Do you want to hear this or not? Yes, I do. No, I'm not going to tell you now. Look, okay. So, so I I just started going to the gym seriously, and I got seriously big. I was wearing sandbags uh, around my ankles. I was like, I was just like doing power walks with 15 kilograms of sandbags, right? Uh, as well as going to the gym, and I just discovered whey protein, which is still quite a new thing back then, particularly in China. And I got big, and uh, that kind of stuff. And so, I'll, and uh, I'd had a photo taken with my dolphin and my muscles. <laughs> Uh, at a restaurant. I think we were eating sea penis, sea elephant or something. I can't remember what we were eating, but really expensive stuff out of a out of a tank. Tastes horrible. Uh, sea cucumber, sea penis and sea elephant. I can't remember what it was called. Elephant penis. Sea I can't penis. Remember. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like a giant penis in a shell. Uh, but it's really expensive. Uh, I was like, oh, can we just get the, can we just get the wood pigeon instead? Like, yeah, get the wood pigeon instead. So uh, all that going on. Uh, and living the high life, actually. Uh, generally, 
Uh, it was an easy time. It's Doctor DVD word, yeah. <laughs> Doctor DVD was just a sideline to my successful life at the time, Richard. Right, okay. So the thing is, like, this is why it's got such resonance. Is that I was in business or about to become in business with you know my business partners, who I guess you might say were lesbian in a certain sort of way, uh, and uh, so this kind of had resonance for us. Uh, but the thing is, right, okay. One of them had had bought like I think it was one of the first digital. She got the video cams, yeah, and she kept mm-hmm. buying new video cams. And I think later they became the first digital video cams. But so we had lots of video footage of starting up a business and everything we were doing at night, having a really good time. Of course, she took all the photos too, because I mean at that time there weren't any digital photos. I don't think, or if there were, they were crap. Uh, and so she was like in charge of all that, right? Okay. Uh, and then in two thousand and four. Uh, we left on really bad terms, business-wise. And then in 2007, uh, she died. And oh, the other business partner had split up with her romantically about a year before that. And all the DVD, all the, all the footage, video footage was lost. And all the photos that we'd shared. that I Because I'd left it very quickly in 2004. I hadn't taken them. But I was like, you know, in 2009, when I started talking to the other business partner, I was like, okay, and do we still have the photos of those I think it was seven years of our life we spent together. And she was like, no, like the family threw them away kind of thing. So that's the reason I don't have any photographic evidence of this. What were you asking for photographic evidence? Me, me, me as Dr. DVD? Yes, Paul. I but feel... I don't care about Dr. DVD. I oh. care about the time when I had muscles and I had a really cute little dolphin around my neck and like a bootleg tie <laughs> kind of thing. I just wanted that photo because it was the one time I thought, Paul, you look close, not too handsome, but like human. Like, not like a smudged Picasso. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was the one moment where I seemed to look right physically and facially. And I was really happy with it. And it was a really happy moment in my life. It's the one photo that if you had, you know, if you say you keep one photo of yourself in your life, that would have been the photo and it was lost. So that's why I remember the movie. It's got resonance in many ways, but also it's a, re- oh, I was about to find out, it's probably a really good movie also. I bought this on DVD and I don't, didn't like to buy things on DVD. Huh. I mean, I did. I bought Blade and Bound and a bunch of other things. I needed software to play on my surround sound system, like you were talking about. The point I'm making is, yeah. I obviously must have liked this film enough. Arguably, maybe my interest was a prurient interest in sapphism, hot lesbian sex. <laughs> <laughs> But hey, it really comes in, and uh, we're 1996 cool about lesbianism. The start of this movie, do you know what I mean? It does hit the yeah, hit, hit the spot. I mean, so many ways. Obviously, the Wachowskis have gone through a journey of their own, and you can see, you know, oh, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it's, it comes from an authentic place, also, and defo, defo, defo. You know, my pervy interest in lesbians. I mean, I was a young man, right? You know, it was okay yeah. then. In 1996, for me to be into it all. It depends how you're into it, you know. <laughs> In my, my perspective, if you just view it as porn, I think it's okay. Oh, really? If you're ex- yeah. I, this, is, I, this is where I disagree with lots of people. If you expect this to somehow be representative of things that are going to happen in your life, then I think that's where the problem. When the reality clouding occurs is, I think, where it's a problem. I think fancy left of fancy is perfectly okay. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You know... People get all upset about pornography and what it does to young As if it's real. But they don't complain about, say, romance novels, which might give young girls crazy ideas about what 
you know, love is all about and how that works. Or, or serialised murder detective dramas on TV. Which you might know, give I mean. you the un- unrealistic impression that, you know, the police can catch these people or whatever. So, so anyway, when you watch this movie, it turns out it's not really about that. And it is no. a cracking film. What a nice twist at the end. I've forgotten that twist. Okay. Ridiculously high reviews. It scores something ridiculous on Rotten Tomatoes, like 4.7 out of 5. Whatever the scoring system is out there. It's good reviews all around. So I, for I the think... first time, mm-hmm. I'm going to actually feel guilty maybe about spoiling this film. Only so I'll spoil it. It's 1996. If you haven't watched it by now, then... It is about fucking time. Yeah? <laughs> but, by the way, although I have the DVD here, I watched this online on IMDb Free. Oh, what? Did what? you pay for it? No, it's IMDb free. That's clues in the name. Why didn't you tell me about that, Richard? <laughs> I just paid three forty-nine to watch this in SD on Amazon, <laughs> Amazon Prime. But wait, you say? How does IMDb free work? And why? Yeah, how does it work? How does it work? Well, you get adverts instead of having to pay for the film. Oh, well, okay. No, I'm happy to pay for it. Really, you don't want adverts. <sighs> I prefer like a 30 second advert at the beginning, 30 second at the end, and still pay £2.49. Well, let me tell you. So I prefer pay with a little reduction for deciding if I want to watch an advert that time. My experience of IMDb Free was that like 8% of the adverts were for IMDb Free. (laughs) I don't know where the money is coming into this whole transaction from. (laughs) Some sort of uh, laundering operation going on. But why, you might ask, did I not just pop my DVD in and watch my own copy? I don't know, because you've not got a DVD player anymore. That's absolutely true. Or you, you, did, you forgot what the difference is between a CD player and a DVD player. You try to put it under the car and realise why is there no projector on the ceiling kind of thing. <laughs> Potentially. It's worse than that. I'm sure my bound copy is a Region 1 DVD. Oh, no. That's US. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, for those who don't remember even what DVDs are, when they brought out DVDs, they region-locked them. So, you can only play DVDs bought in a certain region from, on players from that region that are coded to that. I think a Dr. DVD might have had a hand in that. <laughs> you bastard. Not the real Dr. DVD, not me playing Joey playing Dr. DVD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, now I understand why he's so cagey about all of this. <laughs> yeah, okay. He's somewhere at the bottom of a lake. Look, okay. Uh, so, let's less said about that, the better. Okay, I love this movie because it is so ahead of its times in many ways. Okay, instead of whiskey and soda, we have Tanqueray, which is whiskey and tonic. Or is it gin? I can't remember. Tanqueray is whiskey. It's, a, it's gin. what used to be... A, no, it's a really out-of-date whiskey. No, it's a gin, isn't it? I think it's a gin. It was so unfashionable, and now it's way back in fashion because of the old, you know, the stylish bottle and the original The gin thing, the gin revival. And, of course, the whole gin thing where we decided that, you know, gin was suddenly okay to drink in the way that sherry still isn't, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Anyway, so Tanqueray and Tonic, and they just carry all that through in a way that was ahead of its time. I loved it. Listen, it's the Wachowskis. They know how to do style. They know how to put sexy... This is an old... You say it's ahead of its time. It is ahead of its time. It's also old-fashioned. It's like a film noir. And it's, it's Edward Hopper, but noir, isn't it? It's putting real sexy, like, movie-star-look people 
on screen. So breathy, so breathy. Lighting them, yeah, yeah. Lighting them really well and getting them, yeah, to act, you know, in a sexy, seductive kind of way. Listen, we have to explain what happens in this movie. Jennifer Tilly, I guess you would say, is the lipstick or the pillow of the two. And Corky, I guess you would say... Gina Gershon. Is, is going to be the butch girl, yeah. Okay, maybe. This film starts, really, about two-thirds of the way through. It starts it does, yeah. in the middle of the story with Corky, as we will come to know her, Gina Gershon, but she's tied up in a closet and she is reliving conversations in her head that she's been having uh, between her and this other woman. I love it, yeah. This is it's a very kind of Tarantino-esque way of starting, you know. But not confusing. It's just like, it makes sense, you know. Yeah. It's not... Tarantino can overdo these multiple threads, can't he, I think. Yeah, this is just one moment. In a sense now, the rest of the movie is kind of like a flashback. We're going to run up. Yeah. We're going to run up to that point. Gradually, the two timelines meets meet up again. Yeah, okay. So, like, it's in a world that, you know, if K.D. Lang had been classed as hard rock, and she never was, this would be like porn, but it's not, okay? It's like all breathy. It's all breathy suggestion. I don't remember what some of the breathy... When they first meet, it's like, oh... I make a coffee for you. I guess you were straight black. Or what's the other one? You know, it's like it's all this breathy, squeaky, squeaky voice flirtation Can that's I, just going on. With I want to blow your mind. Love it. I want to blow it. your mind with a little fact here. Yeah. Originally, pouting. So much pouting. Originally, the casting of those two ladies was the other way around. Whoa. Yeah. And I'll tell yeah. you something else that's amazing. Gina Gershon, Corky, she was slated to be. Trinity in the Matrix. Wow. Now, there's some there's some dialogue that you think would be the sexual innuendo, and that 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 sort of circling around getting off hold each up, other. Hold up, hold up. Wait, stop. Just let me. Okay, <laughs> okay. Go on. You can explain the story in a second. Okay. Okay. But like, oh, she says, "Could you not use your power tools at night?" Yeah, and it's <laughs> not innuendo. Amazingly, she's actually not talking about. It is brain, innuendo, is it? Paul. It no, is. it's not, yes, is it? It is. It is. It is. Okay. Yeah, it's it is. also innuendo. Well, it's all innuendo, though. I didn't realise it was all innuendo. Okay, Richard, go on. Explain the story. So, after the flashback moment, we're now following Corky as uh, she's uh, obviously a work, a, work, a work person. She's carrying her tools to this apartment block. She goes up in a lift with Jennifer Tilly and what appears to be her boyfriend, Joey Pantoliano. Uh-huh. And her and Jennifer Tilly, Violet, as we learn, exchange the most amazing, completely silent moment of seduction, sort of sultry glands looking at one another. Yes. She's absolutely electric. The you know, the relationship between these two is it's phenomenally charged. Corky goes into the apartment next door and she watches them go into their apartment. She goes in. She's doing like handy handyman jobs, you know, she's uh, snaking the bathtub and getting all that gunge out and stuff like that. And she hears the fucking through the wall, doesn't it? Doesn't she? She can hear them. The thin walls. She becomes important later. I think Violet comes around at one point, doesn't she? Yeah. For the first close to breathy flirtation scene. Yeah. And Violet knows how to seduce. It's like her job. Oh, yeah. She's good. This film, by the way, Paul had, like, a lesbian consultant to help with a lot of this yeah. stuff. Do, are you aware of this? I didn't know that, no. 
So she's actually got a small role in the film as well. There's a lady called Susie Bright, who was the sex right. advisor. I think she was like a sex columnist. She's like, a, at the time, I suppose, a famous lesbian. She appears in the scene that we see shortly after Violet and Corky first meet. Right. Where Corky goes into the bar called The Watering Hole. <laughs> oh, right. I was going to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This this movie had everybody dressed in DKNY black. If you grew up in the 90s, <laughs> you'll know what DKNY black is. Okay. It's sort of clothes that would match having blues music on in the background, drinking whiskey from a bottle, maybe <laughs> revving... A motorbike, but not, you know, a very clean chrome motorbike outside a biker's bar. And talking about a job in a way that obviously means involving some sort of fence. crime. Okay. Yeah, we we yeah. learn that Corky has just got out or is a criminal of some kind, don't we? And she sits down next to a woman who's sitting in a booth on her own. That is Susie Bright, I believe. And shortly afterwards, another woman comes up who's a cop and obviously the girlfriend of the girl sitting down and scares Corky off you know by asking her when she got out of prison and stuff like that now Susie Bright's advice I think lends this a lot of lesbian authenticity to the film which means it is actually a hit with the lesbian audience because you know sure she taught sure all the staff all the cast and the writers and Wachowskis you know how to frame all how this to do stuff. lesbian yeah can I just point out three things that the, the two lead characters say? Okay. Yeah. Like, Corky's putting pressure on... on uh, What's Jenny's character called? Violet. Violet. Okay. To be, like, more out. Like, she's disputing whether Violet is actually a real lesbian. And Violet says, you know, I know what I am without having a fucking tattoo of it on my shoulder. <laughs> Which is... You'd hear that, you know, if you hung out with lesbians at any time. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but then, of course, uh, Corky's got her two nice phrases, which are quite similar. One thing I can't stand about sleeping with women is the fucking mind reading, okay? <laughs> yeah. which you're going to hear from any butch lesbian. And the other one is, uh, I can't stand it when women apologise for wanting sex, which yeah. is a genuinely lesbian thing to say. So really authentic, the voices I found. It's Not only that, it's great to hear it. It's great to hear women say that on screen. Mm-hmm. I think mean, it's ahead of its time, as you say, in that respect. But it's also quite easily, quite clearly declaring itself as being, mm-hmm. uh, we know we're ahead of the curve. Kind of <laughs> oh, yeah, it's self-aware. It's quite, it's quite pleased with itself, isn't it? But fair play, you know. It, it, I mean, it doesn't come across as dated in any kind of way. Maybe a trifle too earnest about what it's doing, trying to do, you know, set these real societal motions in line with, a fictional crime narrative, which in itself is interesting. Yeah, okay, we get to see real lives, if you like, uh, from the perspective of society, flawed lives uh, operating within within a criminal bosom. You see, it's it's quite interesting how they do all that. Yeah, okay, uh, quite the, the, you know the world is quite well quite well cast, I think. But Richard, go. On, you were going to say? Well, I was just going to talk more about the sex. <laughs> So one of Susie Bright's things that she advised them about... Really good sex, actually. Is, well, she did advise them on the sex scene, not surprisingly. But I think she also clued them in on the fact that, you know, for, for some lesbians, the, the hands are a very important kind of sort of sexual signifier, sort of sex organ in a way, right? Yes. And they play up on that, you know. 
I think when the in the first meeting between Violet and Corky, you know, there's a great player the handing the mugs over and the holding the the cups in a particular way. In some sense, it might be seen as a phallic proxy here, the hand. Yeah, exactly. Potentially, exactly. And then the next seduction scene occurs. So, obviously, Corky completely flunked out at the gay bar. She's she goes back to her uh, bedsit room or where it is. She's lying on the bed wearing a pair of Y fronts and playing a Jew's harp. Is that what they're called, those things? Uh, the harmonica. No, not a harmonica. Oh, it's one of those boing, oh, it's the boing you one. Boing, boing ones, yes. Jew's harp. Yeah, yeah. You see her the next day in that apartment and she's listening to some like uh, dyke rock music, isn't she? And she's <laughs> painting the walls. Not Katie Lang, by the way. And she, so at this point, she gets a phone call from her handler. She winds up going around to the next door neighbour, where Violet answers the door. She explains that she's lost her earring down the U-bend. <laughs> so, Corky Not being euphemistically at all. <laughs> this whole thing is pure sex, Paul. This whole yeah. scene. It's smouldering, uh, yeah. By the way, how do I know all of this? Apart from reading IMDb's trivia... He's stuff, watched it several times. No, listen... One of the great advantages of a DVD is you get a director's commentary. And one of the very few films I've ever bothered to listen to the director's commentary on was Bound. And they've got Gina and Jennifer talking all about this stuff. So um, it was really a really interesting film to hear their insights on it. But this whole scene... But I was going to say, this whole scene is a sex scene. Well, you don't realise it maybe consciously. But, you know, Corky is, is down, kneeling on the ground, you know, under the sink. Violet's standing there, you know, dressed amazingly sexily. Her thigh is, you know, in, inches away from Corky's face. And Corky is getting a hand, and she's grabbing that pipe and twisting the the twist <laughs> thing in the U-bend. And, you know, her fingers are sliding into that the U-bend gap. <laughs> <laughs> repeatedly as she unscrews it and you know water starts coming down <laughs> it's just pure sex it is so I would say um, along with the euphemism uh, or if you like the strongly analogical uh, sex scenes um, there's this kind of style to it where it's presenting a world a hep cat world uh, you know a, a, an idea of society that clearly is divided into you know uh, normies and mafia kind of thing. And so you've got those kind of Lynchian moments of like, as they're moving into, or, yeah. as, as they're moving into a scene. Okay. Uh, then you've got the walking jazz bass, like, dum, 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 dum. Like it's kind of, <laughs> it's, I, I think they're using these like almost semi-anachronistic things to give it that stamp. It's interesting. Those decisions anyway, is all I'm going to say. They're, they're observable and they're interesting, but I don't quite know what they mean. But it gives it a certain style and a recognisable signature to, to the movie. Violet offers Corky a drink. Do I make you nervous? Thirsty, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Curious. <laughs> and they're sitting on the sofa talking. This is the real seduction scene. This is incredibly hot. They yeah, just bang care. it out at some point, don't they? It's, it, well, they start kissing, don't they? After, after um, Violet comments on Corky's tattoo which is a labrys on her shoulder, and she touches it. You know, she, Oh, she shows her 
tattoo, which is on a tit, basically, isn't it? And gets Corky That's to right touch yeah. it. After that, then they kiss. Yeah. But they're interrupted because... <laughs> because he Violet's comes in. boyfriend, Caesar. Caesar. Joey Pantaleone. He, he, he blows up. He thinks she's with a, a guy because Corky looks a little bit but from from the back, doesn't she? But he comes in and I'm sure it's intentional. His New York accent, he doesn't say it's fucking dark in here. He says, it's fucking dyke in here. <laughs> I'm sure it's intentional. <laughs> yeah, that's right. As soon as she stands up, he kind of recognises his mistake and apologises. And then they have an exchange where it's obvious that he knows her boss and he knows that she was inside and, you know, She's part of the family, really. Absolutely. Yeah. She goes yeah. back to the apartment and <laughs> she cleans her paintbrushes. And again, it's it's so self-aware, you know. And she's aware of it as well because she's standing at the sink. She's running her hands through the bristles of the brush. And then she yeah. grins at herself. She looks at herself and goes, Corky, what are you doing? Because <laughs> she also knows that she's getting in deep and she's, you know, in trouble with this girl next door who's got a boyfriend. Absolutely, yeah. Plot thickens. So then you get the scene when they're in the, I think they meet in, the, in her truck. Yes. I, I think actually that this is the scene where they fuck, isn't it? The next scene. Uh-huh. I think I read a quote here from Vulture or something that this is arguably the best sex scene in cinema. Wow. I mean, it's, it's that highly rated. I think it's understandably uh, rated highly. Because it, it is very hot and amazingly filmed. You don't realise this. And this is like inside baseball stuff, isn't it? But filming a lot of these scenes is difficult in a movie setting, right? Because like in a normal yeah. in a normal house like mine, for instance, if you imagine trying trying to put a film crew and a camera and a sound operator and all the people and all those director's chairs, and the director with a little monitor and everything. If you put all of that in your average ha- house, you'd have no room to do anything, right? Which is why most interior scenes are usually filmed on a sound stage. When you build a sound stage for an interior scene, you have to build a bunch of walls, you know, to make it look like someone's house. You know, you put a wall right. in a fake window, a wardrobe, you know, a painting on the wall, all of that stuff looks like a house, and then you start filming. But there's usually a, a wall missing, or maybe two, so you've got yeah. plenty of room to put the crew. You know, you know, you know. You've seen the behind the scenes of TV shows and films where they're doing this. Mm-hmm. But for the sex scene that they filmed in this, and again, I know this from the director's commentary. You know, they move around the characters at various points. They also go over the top of them. I think they start over the top, and the camera sort of pans down. Um, and to do that, they had to manufacture the set so they could move the walls away so they could bring the camera down on a boom you know and move Ah. it in three dimensions so the the whole room kind of can be articulated to move in and out and i think they did about eight takes of this you know and and did it several times and then cut the best bits together i think they were told to cut the original version out by the censors who didn't like the fact you could see someone's fingers entering someone's crevice or something or someone's hand covering it up. But, you know, irrespective, it still remains an extremely erotic scene. And look, the thing is, these two characters, you sense they've got, you know, a real powerful uh, sort of erotic connection. They clearly have a thing for each other. It's amazingly done. I'll tell you something about this film. There's not much dialogue in this film. It's very, very tight. There's There's no flab at all in this film. It is MVP in terms of the dialogue, yeah. yeah. There's 
very few scenes where these two characters get to know each other, but you totally buy that they're completely into one another. They're all about each other. A whirlwind romance. Yeah, it's like right. love at first sight, isn't it? It's literally is love at first sight. So at what point do they hatch their plan to get away with some money? What? How does the heist come about? Well, they start talking about what they do, don't they? Cork is a bit pissed off that Violet's fucking guy is, you know, in the apartment. She sees another guy come, and Violet clearly has sex with him. Corky confronts her about this just after they fucked or something, I think. Violet says, what you heard wasn't sex, it was work. You know, and she's making the point that she's doing this for a job, basically. Or to keep, you know, her position, you know, as a gangster's mole, effectively. And at some point... And this is a Wachowski trademark thing, really, isn't it? Well, certainly they repeat this motif in The Matrix. Big black limo arrives. Classic black limo. Loads of guys in shades get out. Yeah. There's a brilliant scene where, uh, after they all go in the, house, the place next door, Corky's, I think, looking in the bathroom because she can hear a commotion next door. And she's watching the toilet, the water and the toilet sort of vibrate. She's hearing, like, impacts. And you see the toilet water vibrate. And it cuts to the other side of the wall, where presumably the other toilet is. And they're beating this guy up, this guy, Shelley. Oh, it's Shelley. Why are they beating him up? What happened? Well, he's stolen money, hasn't he, from the mob? Oh, he's stolen some money, but not two million. He was handling some money and they don't know where it is. It does happen. As we notice in Hotel Italia, Switzerland, whatever that movie was we watched. What was that? That movie. Um, I can't remember yeah. the name, but that's the other gangster movie we, we watched. Yes. We have that's right. Yeah. Sorry, go on. So there's several people beating this guy up. There's Johnny, who we'd learn is like the, the son of the, the mob boss or the capo. Or the something. mob boss, yeah. And then there's the guy with the heart of gold, Mickey, the older guy. Yeah. And he's like looking out for Violet, who's a bit upset by the violence. And he's got his heavy with him. But he asks Caesar for some secateurs. So he's not really got a heart of gold. And he goes into the bathroom, which, by the way, is a wet room. Have you ever had a, a place with a wet room? Yeah, yeah, of course I have. Oh, right. Is that, is that common in swanky apartments? Most wet, hot countries, yeah. Like, if you're Dr. DVD, I guess you can have whatever kind of bathroom you hey, like. Hey, you yes. know, I knew you wouldn't let it lie. <laughs> I'm not going to share personal information with you anymore. <laughs> right, okay. Paul, if you, the podcast, you have, look, being okay, the face look. of DVD in all of China isn't personal information. No, no, most of China, like several <laughs> tall buildings. David Beckham, I think, became the face of DVD for another company, but I'm not sure they paid him for it, to be honest with you. There can't be two Dr. That's DVDs, when, Paul. Someone that's when my star them. waned. That's when my star waned. I think when David you Beckham David took Beckham. over the promotion for, for another company. I bastard. I seem to remember David Beckham was was promoting and endorsing a lot of Chinese products that I'm not sure he's ever heard of. <laughs> How inauthentic. Quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, of course, you know, as I don't have photos at that time, it's hard to get documentary evidence of all that, all that free publicity David Beckham generated for companies out there. But well done, David. Sorry, Richard, you were saying. Yeah, so Mickey cuts off Shelley's finger with his secateurs and they're forcing him to reveal where he's hidden this money. Violet can't handle it. She goes to Corky. She explains to Corky that Shelley was skimming from the business she wants out. She doesn't want to be part of this violent scene anymore. Um, and apparently Caesar has figured out that it's over $2 million. Oh, right. So the money that turns up is the money that, that Shelley was skimming. Yeah. 
Exactly. So Violet and Corky cook up this plan. Violet wants out. She reckons they can get this two million, which would be enough to get them away, get them set up. And who fit? Yeah. She's heard that Corky's, you know, she must have been in for something, you know, some. so she must have something about her. Corky wants to see the money before she'll agree to this plan. So later, Violet goes back and Caesar comes back in with a bag full of money. There's blood all over it. <laughs> this is a scene I remember it. Okay, he washes each bill by hand and hangs it up. Hangs the money up on, on a clothesline indoors. Okay, that's the bit I remember. It's a that very memorable thing. point for, but for the movie. I, notice what they didn't do here. Like, again, maybe this is just down to budget. You I mean, you could argue this film is like a play. I mean, it really takes place yes. in two apartments and maybe the bar scene and maybe, well, maybe a third apartment with uh, You're right, yeah. place as well. But, you know, in a lot of films, they would have gone out to the location. They would have shot the bit where Shelley leads them to the money and where what because we're just told what happens. Yes. Caesar just explains that Johnny lost his shit, shot Kelly right over the money, and that's how the blood is all over it. Now Johnny comes out with a broken nose later. Who broke Johnny's nose? Caesar did. Because Caesar was so pissed off that he shot Shelley right over all the money that he popped him right in the nose. Ah. Even though he's the boss's son. But you know Johnny was an idiot. And his dad was like, Gino's like, it's okay. It's okay, Caesar. I understand my son's an idiot. It's kind of thing. So, you know, they're all fans. Hey, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you to respect my son as you'd respect me. <laughs> so he's got $2 million in $100 bills that he washes and irons each one individually. How many dollar bills? 20,000 bills. 20,000. Do you think you could iron 20,000? Bills. You could. You could definitely do a good for a minute. It's going to take about 100 hours, two weeks' work. No, I mean, you can I He does it overnight. If you quit, you can maybe do it faster. Yeah, Yeah, maybe you could. I guess, I guess it's can, a learning curve. You can probably iron several bills at once, can't you, if you're going to iron? Yeah, you probably could do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, okay. So, yeah, it all happens. The money's there now in Caesar's apartment. Right? Yeah. And they've got to do something about it. Corky's seen the money, hasn't she? Hasn't she? Because while Caesar yeah. was in the shower, Corky had been hiding in the flat, in the apartment. And now she's seen the money. She, I think she sneaks out and they've got this plan. And now the rest of the movie plays out whilst they're kind of describing bits of the plan in your classic kind of heist movie style. And the plan goes like this. Violet drops the whiskey which apparently Gino has to have. He has to drink it. Gino Marciani always drinks his whiskey. I think it's Glenlivet. It is, yeah. But she drops a bottle, smashes it. Caesar comes out. Oh my God, Violet, what have you done? That's the... He's coming over. Calm down, calm down. Uh, she says she'll go and get some more from the shop. Yeah. So as she's leaving, she goes out. Uh, Corky sneaks in with the doors open. Let's Corky in. Corky goes to the case where the money has been put, all ironed and neat. Takes out. it. Violet has left for a pile of newspapers about the size of the case. So, and a bag. And so she grabs all the money out of the case, replaces it with newspapers, and relocks it. And by the way, how does she unlock the case? Because Corky's got these really cool lock picks that she has in her ear. Whoa. Like I didn't notice that. Earring things, piercings. Or a lot that is clever. That would get you through customs every time. Well done. 
Have you watched The Lockpicking Lawyer on YouTube? No, but I can write. Because you might think all this Hollywood lockpicking shit is, you know, just make-believe. It's not. The Lockpicking Lawyer is what he says on the tin. He's a lawyer, but his spare time hobby... He's picking locks. ...is lock sport. Yeah. This is, this is a thing. I don't know if you know this. You can actually buy locks and lockpicks just to learn it, you know, and a little kind of clamp to put the lock in. And you can learn how to pick locks. And, you know, there are competitions, I guess, where you go and they give you a lock and the fastest person to pick it wins. And the lock it's picking... like Rubik's Cube meets Sudoku. Exactly. But with the practical aspect. Exactly. And the lock picking lawyer has hundreds and hundreds of YouTube videos where Whoa. he'll either have gone out and bought a lock from the hardware store or yeah. people have sent him locks, challenge locks, that they think he'll have trouble <laughs> with. And I don't think I've ever seen him fail... He just picks them within, usually within two minutes or something. He's amazingly Ooh. fast. And he explains how he does he it. He change his it's job pretty- to, a, to, a, to a locksmith. It's well worth watching, Paul. I advise you. To watch so it. I thought at this point the heist was going to be easy lifting heist for low IQ culture lesbians. Okay, But like the plot does thicken a bit at this point, doesn't it? Things go wrong. The plan is to frame Caesar for the theft so that They've replaced the money in the case. Uh, Caesar will have to run because they'll think, oh, they'll kill him because they think that he stole the money from them. Then, of course, Violet can disappear because her, her boyfriend isn't there anymore. Exactly. And then she'll be free. And what she does is when she gets back in the apartment from getting the whiskey, she tells Caesar that she saw Johnny leaving the apartment in his car and she beeped at him, but he didn't see her and he drove away. And Caesar goes, no, that can't be true because they've not arrived yet. They're getting Gino from the airport. How can you have seen Johnny? He wasn't here. Wait a minute. If Johnny was here, he must have been in. Uh, maybe he's got to the money. And he goes and opens the case. And, of course, he sees newspaper there. Fuck, Johnny replaces with newspaper so that when I open it in front of Gino, they all think it was me. And at this point, Violet and Corky think Caesar's going to panic and run because he thinks the boss's son has framed him up. And there's no way you're going to be able to convince him that he hasn't. But instead, Caesar decides... He's brave. He's got, to, he's got to prove that Johnny did it. And he's thinking, oh, where could have Johnny put the money? Could only be in his car. He's gone straight to the airport. It must be in his car. So he thinks he's going to confront Johnny about it. What a brave guy. It's, it's a criminal mindset in a way, isn't it? I mean, Caesar's a horrible person, he but he's brave. I'll give him that. I, I thought as well, maybe the weakness of their plan is wouldn't... If they if they got Caesar to run, wouldn't he have taken Violet with him? How would they have? Yeah, they hadn't really thought it through. But in any case, it goes wrong, so that never comes to fruition, does it? When he opens that case, you get that scene that we mentioned the other week, the Snorri yeah. cam, where he's got the camera on his chest, and you get this really amazing, like swimmy feeling of someone who's just having a panic attack, basically, where it's a close up on Caesar's face. And, you know, he's, like, stumbling around and sits down dizzy because he's just realised that he's been fucked over. And his hatred of Johnny is so intense. And, by the way, Joey Pantoliano's acting, the smouldering hatred he has for Johnny, when those guys arrive through the door, yes. he gives him a look without it's saying... It's tentative, it's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah. It's absolutely... It's chilling. You can taste it like aluminium. It's so... So sharp. Because then there's a there's a moment of the the mobster social stuff where they all, you know, 
have a drink. Hey, Johnny. <laughs> How's, hey, it yeah. Yeah, How's it going? How's it going? Etc. And then there's that We've moment of tension movies. where, you know, they, they, you know, let's have a look at the money then. And he puts it in front of Johnny. Boom. Go open it, you know. I, I don't have a key. Well, didn't stop you before. Open it, you know. <laughs> What are you talking that about? was a really, really tight so scene, actually. Yeah. I think from this point on, the tension is it's just non-stop. It's absolutely yeah. on the edge of your seat stuff. It's brilliantly done. It is. It's a nice end of roller coaster, okay? It leaves the big dips or less. So he shoots, he shoots John at that point, doesn't he? Well there's a standoff, isn't it? There's a Mexican standoff because I don't is that a racist thing to say? I don't know. But they all pull their no. guns at some point, don't they? Because uh, and Gino is walking towards Caesar, who's pointing his gun at him. He's going, hey, you, you, Caesar, you don't want to be pointing a gun at me. you know. And he puts his hand on Caesar's gun and then Caesar shoots him, deciding that he's probably mm-hmm. dead anyway now if he's waved his gun at the mob boss. So at this point, he's looking at a room full of dead people. He manages to kill them all, doesn't he? Yeah, Violet says, Caesar, you just killed Gino. <laughs> Mazzoni, is it? I thought it was Ma- Marzipone, Marciano. I don't know his name. Gina Marci- Marciano. She's like, look, just the game's you gotta up. Go. Just you got to go, you got to run, yeah. But he doesn't, he puts him in the bathroom, is that right? There's a really sort of quasi-funny bit where he's looking for the ticket, the plane ticket, Gino's plane ticket, That's and right. he pulls it out of his pocket, <laughs> and he opens it up, and there's two holes in it with a bullet's gone through, bullet, and he sees yeah. eyes through it. <laughs> that is a really nice shot. They hear that the cops are coming, because gunshots. So they turn the TV up. He tells Violet to stall them. She looks really worried about it all, and he, and he says, "They're just cops. Stall them as long as you can." So she turns up the TV. He moves yeah, the furniture to... around. He's like cleaning up like crazy. He's got three dead bodies bleeding in his lounge. He moves them all into the bathroom, and then really hurriedly, he has to clean up all this blood. He moves a rug over a bunch of it, <laughs> and put like a detective. Movie on the TV. Really loudly. Really loudly. So as the cops are walking down... They're like, oh, it's just the TV. They hear this gunshot on the TV. And he's pulled the shower curtain across these three dead bodies in the bathroom. (laughs) Which is because one of the coppers arrives and he says... Has to go and take a look. Yeah, and he tees your bathroom. And he does so right next. (laughs) Oh my God, it is so tense. They ratchet up the tension. Brilliant. Brilliant. Suffice it to say, they kind of get away scot-free. The cops leave, I think, pretty much with nothing. But then it's when the big guy, big mafia guy, turns up, yeah? Uh, no, it's not a big mafia guy. Okay, it's yeah. Mickey again. He's another heavy. Mickey. But the point okay. is, at this point, Caesar frantically looks for the money. He goes to Johnny's place. He turns it over. Meanwhile, Corky is sitting in the next apartment listening to a lot of this. She can hear. She yeah. heard gunshots and stuff. Girlfriend's over there. Violet has called her at least once, but she's got all this money in bags, and you can see her thinking, "You know, I could split with this money." We did learn that Corky had a partner before, who had split and left her. Oh. But clearly, Corky thinks too much of Violet to do that. It's a love story. This oh. film, right? Uh, meanwhile, Caesar's called Mickey to buy time. He tells her that Gina hasn't showed up. But he still has the money, so that's all fine. He has a plan to dump the bodies. Violet's calling Corky because she's really frightened. And at this point, Caesar comes into the bedroom. She sees Violet's on the phone to somebody. Violet puts the phone down really quickly. Caesar's furious. He runs over and he presses redial on the phone. You've been talking to whoever. Yeah, he suspects it could be anyone. But 
the phone rings out, and at first he's just listening down the phone, and the person at the other end picks up and puts it down. Mm. Then he re- presses retail again. It rings again. She don't pick up. He he suddenly realizes he can hear the phone ringing through the wall, through the thin wall. This is a twist that I love. It's brilliant. The tension has been palpable 15 minutes and at this point it's like oh my gosh what's gonna happen and Corky realises at the same moment that she's fucked yeah. and she yanks the cord out but it's too late this by the way lets you know that this is an era where landlines are still a thing <laughs> there, is, there is a mobile phone there are a couple of mobile phones but they're really old very pre-smartphone aren't they and they're not generally using them uh, meanwhile there's a fight happening so Caesar's furious with uh, with Violet Corky runs over and picks the lock, and she's got a gun. There's a brief fight, yeah. but Corky's like overpowered, and this is how she ends up. Eventually, she's going to end up in the closet. But before that point, Caesar's got the secateurs. He's going to cut off her fingers. And at this point, Mickey arrives, and he's been trying to call, but the phone was off the hook because, of course, he'd been pressing redial and then fighting with Violet and Corky about it all. Corky tells Caesar that the money's in the paint tin tins next door. So she's put it in plastic bags and dropped it into all this white paint. He puts Corky in the closet, which is where we started off in the film. He puts V in the um. bathroom and then he goes and answers the door, uh, says the phone was off the hook because V was helping him relax and now she's in the shower. And Mickey's all like, oh yeah, well, you know, if Violet was helping me relax, I'd probably take the phone off the hook. And you're thinking, oh no, he's got away with it. Fucking Caesar's got away with it all. <laughs> Mickey, he wants to take a look at the money, and he picks up the case. And I don't. Caesar doesn't know what to do at this point. And he says, "Where's the key? Oh, it doesn't matter. I didn't need a key to get in." And he pulls out his lock picks. And at this point, again, there's another kind of comedy moment. There's a massive because you, you get a close up on Caesar, and he swallows hard because he realizes like the jig's about to be up. Just as he's about to open the case and see it's full of newspapers and the, you know, his story has been blown wide open. The apartment phone rings and it turns out to be V who's using Johnny's mobile phone from the pile of corpses in the bathroom. Caesar answers and she's saying, you know, I'll make a deal with you. You know, I, get I know that your phone, your gun is on the kitchen counter surface. Yeah. You're away from it. There's no, you're not, you, you know. You've got no chance unless we do a deal, kind of thing. She tells him to tell them that Gino was in an accident. And he tells them that, you know, go off and pick them up. Tells them where to go. That's great. And then he takes V to the next apartment to go and get the money out of the paint tins. Having promised not to go back on his yeah. word. She's, she's made a deal with him to get him out of this mess. He tips the paint out. So there's white paint all over the floor, but the money is in there. Violet takes this opportunity to run away. And again, this is amazing filmmaking. Mm. So she runs down the stairs. And I don't know what floor they're on, like 10 or 20 or something. She runs down, you know, this uh, staircase, really, really long, multiple flights. She gets to the bottom and she runs mm. to the lift, jumps in the lift, <laughs> presses the up button. And just as <laughs> just as Caesar gets down, you know, to the ground floor, you know, he turns left he sees her in the lift. The doors are closing. She's going all the way back up. Fuck. <laughs> he has to turn around and then walk all the way back up the staircase. That's often, I think that's repeated as you know a trope in the Matrix movies, isn't it? Often closing, closing lifts. I'm not sure. <laughs> it, 
It is quite, in Matrix quite a lot, I think, isn't she it? She also calls Mickey at this point. She acts really panicked and says that Caesar's gone crazy. And, you know, she, she was like under acting under duress and everything. And she knows that Mickey's soft on her. So he's she's gonna he's gonna come and help her out. Corky has escaped and she swipes the money out of the white paint. As Caesar comes back in, she tries to hit him with a monkey wrench. Uh, but eventually, after a bit of a fight, I think he knocks her out. And they're, they're standing in all this white paint, aren't they? Yeah. V comes in with the gun, and she's pointing it at Caesar. And Caesar's saying, oh, Violet, you know, you're not going to shoot. Your classic kind of standoff. You aren't going to shoot. Of course, she fucking does, because he's a despicable human being, and she's actually smarter than anyone gives her credit for. And that's it. They got away with the money. At the end, she manipulates Mickey, tells him that she's got to get out of here, you know. Uh, and he's saying, like, you know, the offer still stands kind of thing. He's obviously offered to look after her and, you know, kind of leching on her. She gives him the most lascivious kiss imaginable <laughs> and then fucks off and jumps in and cork his brand new pickup truck. So they get the girl, they kill the baddies, they get all the money. So therefore we have to give some scores to this one. Paul, what did you think? Of this movie, uh, I remembered it fondly as I watched it. Yeah, uh, yeah fondly, uh, and uh, it hasn't really aged a day. It, you know, I mean, it's it's of its period uh, without a doubt, but it still feels very fresh. Storytelling is great. It's a really crisp and tight ending. Okay, twists and turns, not at every moment, but towards the end, you know, it ratchets up, ratchets ratchets up the tension, the pace moves ahead at a decent speed it's just very well choreographed in terms of the ups and downs of the emotional journey it takes you on and really well observed and as we said so many things about this movie that it gets right okay particularly as uh, a fledgling portrayal of like lesbians living lesbian lives in a big well, wide world the thing is thing. paradoxically one of the things you could say about this film is the fact that they're lesbians is like the least important thing about it. Yes. They're in a big wide world, but they happen to be lesbians. And I think that's one of the first things... This is one of the first times where lesbianism is presented as a fact. And just normal. And, right. and just normal. Despite the fact they are showcasing it. But then, you know, we can understand it's why It's a paradox. It is a so, paradox. It won't surprise you to know that the studio asked the Wachowskis to make Corky a, a guy. Yeah. And they said... To their great credit. Like a Wham song. They said, listen, that film's been made a hundred times. We're not we're not making that film. Like a Wham song. George used to sing about she all the time, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um. Look, I gotta say, you know, particularly after all of the other films we watched in the course of this podcast, yeah. this stands out, this film to me, as being exceptionally good. It's really, really I think it's it's incredibly stylish. It is they stylish. go for the film noir thing. It's an exciting heist. It's perfectly paced. There's not an ounce of fat on this film. Every line of dialogue is important. I really struggled to say anything critical about it. I tried really hard uh, looking at it again. I mean, I've said before that I don't really like the idolization of the gangster, the mobster. I don't like them as, you know, central characters and as big bads. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. okay, Uh, that's a criticism. They're not painted sympathetically, are they, really? I mean, it, it is a world that exists, and it is a world where, you know, people like that do get treated well, uh. but often live short and violent lives. You know, so I don't think there's any 
necessary exaggeration, but it's presented in a filmic way, you know. It's it doesn't matter that it's exaggerated, is it? It's a film world. Mm. It's not... It's a film it's, world, it's not, yeah. Supposed to be real. It's, it's like I say, it's an Edward Hopper painting, but with some noir aspects to it. Okay, it's very, it feels realistic, but very stylized at the same time. So, I mean, Richard, we have to come to scores. I can see you like it lots and lots and lots. Let's start off with the plot. The plot is amazing. It's tight. It's very tense. Maybe there's a slight weakness in their plan, but that's also, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. they're only human. The details that are observed and their also their expression of a love story that. The character of Violet, who is so underestimated, you know, they everyone underestimates her as a an individual, don't they? It's brilliantly observed. This is easily a nine, nine point five. Wow, I'm gonna give it an eight point five. It's really tight. Love it. No problems. I felt maybe that it went. It was like I say. It was a bit of at the beginning. It was a bit of easy lifting. I felt, I felt it was a bit of easy lifting to fit around, you know, a, a lesbian motif. As it turned out, I was wrong about that. Yeah. But still, I thought the first half was a bit slow going. I would have liked a bit more pace. Uh, look, it's true that for the first third of the film, it's like one of those soft core made for TV porn things you used yeah. to get on a KD Lang porn. Yeah, yeah. Sort of. Yeah. Uh, you do get a bit of that. If KD Lang music was porn, it would be like this. It's so much better than that. It is so much better. I, I take it back. What I'm saying is I realised half the movie, I was wrong about that. But that doesn't stop the fact it was a bit too slow for the first third to a half. So 8.5. Acting rich. I can tell you're a big fan of all the acting here. Yeah, they're all brilliant. And I think they all do an amazing job. Um, mm-hmm. I love Joey Pantoliano. He's very menacing. Gina Gershon looks like James Dean stroke Marlon Brando. Yeah, she's really cool, and Jennifer Tilly. You know, Jennifer Tilly's got an amazing voice, but it's actually mm-hmm. difficult to take seriously in some senses. But I think she's mm-hmm. very well cast in this. Can I just say her voice is distinctive? Very, yeah, uh, it works really well as a gangster. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. But in no way is the performance constrained by that voice, and I think she really steps out over the voice, out on the precipice of acting. Many points, you know. Some really, really explorative acting from her. And, and she comes across with gravitas that you think the voice wouldn't lend her. So, in total, 8.5 for the acting. It's all seamless, I would say. I'll go 8.5 as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. What's the next category, Paul, you're going to give? Suspense, I guess. Or thrill. Or Hitchcockianness. Let's just call it Hitchcockianness. The last half of this movie, the last one third to a half of this movie is. Absolutely breathtakingly tense, and you yeah. know, again, there's a chase. There's a chase sequence in this movie that some films would have put, you know, in cars, and they would have driven through the streets of Chicago, uh-huh. wouldn't they? Knocking over trash cans, and but they went a bit Dogville on this, didn't they? Quite cleverly, but not in a Dogville way. But here, the chase sequence is up They're and down re- a staircase of an apartment block, and it's the most thrilling thing. And the moment when she gets in that lift. And you know that if the lift doors haven't closed, she's basically a dead woman. It's brilliant. Yeah. But they go a bit dogville in the you know the fight that occurs that we never actually see. You see so. <laughs> yeah. It's it, it's very taut and efficient the way they do that kind of stuff, and it adds to the tension. It's something Hitchcock would have done, I think, is to let people imagine those things and therefore make the tension and tension a little bit stronger. I think you know. 
But I love the twist at the end. Uh, the telephone in the other room that he That's like never saw it coming. I forgot. That's the, like the, the conversation. Amazing. You know, there are, other films do that kind of thing. It's a brilliant trope, but it's yeah. so well done. And it's just at a pivotal moment where, you know, he's just kind of found her on the phone. Fuck. <sighs> But you don't see it coming, yeah. and that's what you want with suspense and tension. So I've got to give this a nine. Nine for me as well. Last, how about smooth sultriness? Oh, the style of this movie, it drips style, with style. Yeah. Just like the dripping U-bend crevice that Gina Gershon slides her fingers into. <laughs> it's it's amazing, and what's really nice is you can see this, how they carry the style through into the Matrix, right? Yeah. It is good. I'm going to give it an 8 for style. You're going to, probably going to go a bit higher. I'll go 8.5. You know, In some total, I'm going to score it 8.5 all the way through. Really, really high recommend for me. I don't usually score much higher than this. I think we're a bit higher for Dune. can't remember. Uh, but 8.5, really good movie. Definitely recommend. Not a waste of time. And uh, really representative of the best movies of its era, I think. Arty, not art house. Thought-provoking. Does what friends try to do, but without the fat jokes in a certain sort of way. <laughs> You know, kind of changed our perspective on lifestyles, uh, and yeah, silently groundbreaking. I think. Yeah, yeah. You can see why they were given the matrix. Uh, well, the budget for the matrix after this, I think. Definitely. So, Rich, what's your final score overall? Oh, easily a nine. A nine. Wow, that's difficult to come by. In hindsight, you know. Okay. I'd have to say this is one of my favourite movies of all time, and of it, all time. it's very low key. You know, there's no. Big special effects, are there? No massive explosions, no spaceships, no aliens. So, Richard, that being said, I worms, white whales, white whales. Next week, would you forty-four, thirty-four? Ask for more. Ask for more, more white whales. Thirty-four episode, thirty-four. Yeah. What have you got for me, Paul? Well, from this white whale, I finally found my next to last white whale. Okay, which is the 1998 joy, Relax, It's Just Sex. Also, I think, including Jennifer Tilly, which is how I made the connection, how I made the Kevin Bacon. The Kevin Bacon, I see, yes. Mm. I mean, it's an enticing name, and you're not giving me any other choice, so what choice do I have? The answer is none. None. Relax, It's Just Sex. Right. Okay, it's not going to score as high, I don't think, but at the same time, it should be an interesting... Can I see it on IMDb free? We will find out. We'll find out. We've got no idea. It might not even be viewable, <laughs> except on YouTube. Oh well, well, that'll give us a problem. But that's it. Until the next time. Let's see you all next week, episode thirty-four, where we'll be looking at relax. It's just sex. In the meantime, Richard. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> Ciao for now. Thank you.